This is the Bookswell Intersections podcast, episode 13. I'm your host, Cody Sisko, and I'm here with co-hosts Irene Yoon. Hey! And Rochelle Youssef. Hi! And today we're going to talk about books that we loved or didn't love in 2019. Those that stuck with us and that we remember and that we would recommend for some of our audience. So, Rochelle, you look ready. I am ready. Uh, I'm going to talk about first the book I'm currently reading, which is The Patron Saints of Nothing by Randy Rabay, which is a young adult novel about a young Filipino-American boy who finds out his cousin has been essentially murdered in the Philippines. And he's like very... um, moved by this news even though he hasn't spoken to his cousin in a long time and he ends up deciding to take a trip to the Philippines to find out what happens um and I was telling Cody earlier the book is like it's making me very sad and I don't know that it's supposed to make me as sad as it is but um the book is it deals a lot with the main character's feelings of like guilt over the family that he doesn't really talk to in the Philippines. Um, and there's something about that that really like struck a chord with me because I have family in Syria and I've also struggled with that kind of how much t- like you get so caught up in your own world that you don't think about like the family that's maybe experiencing other things in what essentially is like a completely different world to me. Um, so there's like lots of parts of the book so I don't know if it's necessarily meant to be sad but like it really hits a chord with me um about halfway through it now and I'm it's just it's making me think about a lot of things and how I perceive the world and how the relationship I have with like my family here but also my family back in Syria um and I don't I don't know that there are other books like this maybe there are but I haven't read another one that's done that for me um ever I don't think well, actually, so this one's kind of fun and maybe falls into that weird must-read must category, but um, I picked up Catch and Kill recently, the Ronan Farrow book, um, and read it in, like, two sittings, maybe, like, late at night on work nights, which was not what I was anticipating. Um, but I thought I thought it was actually really great. I had a hard time in the first maybe 20, 30 pages of it um, because it's set up a little bit like a noir um, you start off with these like spies meeting covertly, like in a cafe, and then it, you know expands to kind of fill this much darker, larger universe. Um, but I think actually it ends up working really well because there's something about just like the kind of caricaturesque, like you know, caricature kind of um, villainy that is so pervasive in the kind of media industry and um, Hollywood circles that he's obviously you know, investigating over the course of several years, um, that it almost felt like there's no other genre that could quite capture that, like, noir in a certain sense, um, which is like then just that much more jarring and uncomfortable when you juxtapose that with that being reality, right, that there is, that this is nonfiction, this is not just some kind of, like, campy, fun, schlocky thing where they're, like, spies running around and horrible people doing horrible things to other people but like actually this is kind of a, a widespread spread pervasive and systemic problem um that we're still grappling to come up with some kind of reasonable response to right um so I thought it was great I mean it was really it was really moving I thought he did a wonderful job of really foregrounding the voices of uh the extremely courageous women who came forward but also 
um, I mean, for all that, there are a lot of really bad people. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. It's like really horrifying. It's like everybody is terrible. Um, there are actually quite a few extremely like, heroic figures, too. Um, and so, I mean, in a certain sense, like in terms of just kind of generic tropes, you actually get a little bit of both, both and, um, which, I mean, I know this is part of a good, uh, we're going to talk about this in a little bit and thinking about the upcoming year. Um, yeah, I think there's something that really resonated with that and just kind of reading this as like 2019 and winds down, we're thinking about 2020 and kind of for me anyway, like oscillating between feelings of like, you know, kind of a frantic attempt to muster some kind of optimism and then just like profound sadness and nihilism. I feel like there's something also about that maybe that it was like reading this book and in this kind of headspace, I was like, oh yeah, that totally, um, yeah, it resonates in a really interesting way, in a way that I hadn't really expected it to. And I don't often actually read, you know, um, like nonfiction blockbuster bestsellers. Like that's not really my genre. <laughs> there were one, but I was, yeah, I, I was really, um, really moved by it. And I thought it was also a really interesting meditation on like the open secret too. Mm. I mean, so the title Catch and Kill refers to this practice, right? That um, the National Enquirer may be best encapsulate which is that they would you know buy potentially damaging stories around famous people and then squash them right they wouldn't run them at all um but it's interesting to think about these stories that are just like in constant circulation and what it means to actually bring them to life and the you know and how immensely difficult that is so it's not even a matter of like figuring out what the stories are although that's obviously a big part of this too but like actually thinking about how to give stories space um and to amplify them and to make sure that they're heard, which I thought was a really, yeah, it was, it was interesting to think about tropes of the detective fiction of like trying to figure out like the whodunit. It's like not so much like the whodunit, it's just like how, how are you going to take them down? Yeah. Like how do you make sure people like know this and are willing to say it out loud, you know, which is also, I think really interesting. It kind of raises the question of like, who are our heroes mm-hmm. and you know, is, is telling the truth enough or, or is there something more that's needed to make some change happen? And what's the line that a journalist walks and then what is the responsibility for everyone else to pick that up and move it forward? Yeah. I mean, and it's also so hard just given like, you know, the recent like headlines about the settlement that's been reached like in the Weinstein case, for example. It's like, you know, he's not paying a dime, but he's bankrupted the insurance company that's going to make all these payouts. And you're just like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> like, I mean, where's the where's the justice in that? I mean, you know. I don't know. It's it's interesting to, yeah. There's a lot of I think like extreme vacillations between feeling like you know both like extremely proud and like moved by the heroism of a lot of people, and then again I guess like the kind of darkness of like to what end, you know. Um, so I'm gonna pick up on that because mm-hmm. I've been feeling that a lot. I just finished reading this week, um, The Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead. And I mean, I think that, you know, that kind of falls under the category we were talking about earlier of like must read, like very anticipated. I, I hadn't followed like all of the story around the story. So like he's done a ton of interviews, you know, he's a really eloquent speaker. He's like got a lot to say about this book. But I went in knowing basically nothing about it. I mean, I knew there was some really dodgy shit that went down at this school for boys in Florida, but I didn't know any of the, the context. And, and the book reads as almost as a nonfiction um, tale explaining what the day-to-day life was like for boys at this school where, um, you know, it's, it's when, it's before um, desegregation. So the white young men and the black young men 
um, live in separate parts and like they're treated differently. They, I mean, they're, the situation's bad for all of them because they're kind of like in an institution that treats them like crap. But um, but they're even you know levels within that. And you know some of the mo more horrific examples are you know, uh, these boys who disappear um, and just get killed and and forgotten by history. So it reads as this kind of like unearthing of a really dark past. And I got to the end and it's like, you know, this is a work of fiction. And I was like, the whole time I was reading it, I was wondering about his process, about how he decided on these stories to tell, how, um, how he got drawn to the topic. So it, it was almost a bit distracting, me thinking about the meta storytelling part of it and just being inside of the book, unsettling for like multiple reasons, but that was one, you know, based on how he chose to tell it. You guys didn't read it. It is a must read. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely also um, raises the question of what is the responsibility of survivors to speak up and name injustice. That's kind of why I wanted to talk about it following your discussion of Catch and Kill. Right. Yeah, because frequently it's just an, a, another way to victimize the person who speaks up. And like you're saying, not much happens. So we're, we are kind of talking about what things we want to move away from in 2019, and it seems like the past always um, cannot be moved past. It's a very downer thought. <laughs> what are some um, uplifting books that you've read recently? Or, you know, <laughs> there's a bunch of shaking heads in the room. Well, I'll, I'll go. So I read also... Red, White, and Royal Blue by Casey McQuiston, okay. which is set in kind of a, um, you know, a little alternate world where a Democratic woman becomes president, and she's from Texas, and she's got um, a son and a daughter who are like in their early 20s, and they, you know, together, the first family is like really cute and like doing great things for the country, and so for all of that, it's like, ah, oh, well, this is a nice setting to, you know, stew in for a while. The main story is that the first son of the United States, a uh, character named Alex, falls in love with British Prince. And, <laughs> and their, call it courtship, their, their clandestine relationship as it starts out and how it evolves is just so cute and like fulfilling and like um, gives you all the good feels. So for that, I was like, oh my God, she's doing, she's doing the perfect thing that I needed, which was this like escapist fantasy that also sort of retells what our world could be like and so it's uplifting for that reason but then I put the book down and then I started thinking about well if it couldn't work out for the first son of the United States and the Prince of England like I mean, that's just a lot of very privileged milieu that they get to try to solve their problems in and it you know it, the more I thought about it the more it was a downer so I had to just remember like no it's a prince and a political figure and they're having a great time and so I need to not you know critique it too hard yeah sometimes i feel that way with like movies like my big fat greek wedding where i absolutely love that movie and i appreciate the happy ending but the idea that like things sort of work out after this trial and tribulation i'm like is that really how that works because oftentimes it doesn't work that way and i while i love the movies like that or like i read um pride prejudice and other flavors by sonali dev it's like a take on um pride and prejudice obviously and it also 
obviously ends happily ever after. And I'm like, <laughs> I love reading these kinds of books, but I think the older I, I get, the more I'm like, this exists in this world and that's great. And sometimes you need that, but you know, the truth is usually a lot more complicated than, than what you're reading. Also, I was going to mention, did you mention the space ring? No, we didn't. So we're in um, Silver Park Arts, which is a new community art space in Silver Lake that is going to have a variety of programming in 2020, and that's going to include some literary events. So, you know, we may be back here in the space again. Yes, and we're currently surrounded by the most Christmas decorations I think I've ever seen in one room. It's amazing. There's a lot of shiny things, which is my my jam. It's cute. It's cute. Yeah. It's also, the, the ceiling has glitter on it. Yeah, that's definitely my favorite thing. <laughs> and that will always be here year-round. <laughs> what else have you read this year? Hmm. Um, well, this isn't exactly happy. It's not unhappy. <laughs> One of the books I thought was like quite beautiful um, that I read um, recently was Jennifer Croft's Homesick, um, which is like a, a memoir of... of uh, her growing up in Oklahoma and about her family, but also I think really just a beautiful way of um, articulating what it looks like to learn how to build worlds, like build words, like build world, building worlds with um, words, with language, with um, you know family and the people that you know and are closest to when you're you know like when you're a child um, with images. There are all these like really beautiful Polaroid images that. Um, also a thread through the entire text. Um, and so it's a, re- a really like, lovely meditation on kind of, you know, the early years of one's life and thinking through, you know, a number of difficult and in some, case quite, in some cases quite tragic experiences, um, but like through the lens of like what it means to like learn how to reckon with and grapple with and make sense of these things as you kind of start to collect to yourself different ways of doing that, right? Like what does it mean to be able to now articulate what this thing looks like or means or what this experience was or what this person meant to you, right? Whether that's through a visual medium or through language or through a different language and the one that you grew up speaking or, you know, um, through the words of a poet rather than your own words or through, you know, literature and all of these different ways. And so I thought it was a really, yeah, beautifully, um, beautifully written and executed kind of meditation on on those things, which is so interesting too, because I mean she's quite young. I mean she's like our our age, um, so it's it's funny to think about like what it means to write a memoir in that regard, right? It's like oh, like I mean I think about my I mean she's actually accomplished way more than I've ever <laughs> probably ever will, but you know <laughs> for me personally I'm like wow, like what would I say? Um, but in thinking about it like along along those lines, like what does it mean to like learn how to become a person who can you know really understand what it means to engage the world around you in all these different ways right um it was it was very, I thought it was very beautiful and not quite as I guess dark in that regard as some of the books that we've been discussing discussing but um yeah I think that's the nice thing about literature or like you're saying other forms of art it's it either gives you the words to talk about something that you're feeling that you don't know how to express or not to say it's either or but or it shows you things that you didn't know existed mm-hmm. or like shows you perspectives that you didn't know existed um and so in that way it can both like teach you about yourself but teach you about others and how they're experiencing the world mm-hmm. which again in turn teaches you about yourself 
But also, I'm just thinking of some books I've read where that's lacking, and I'm wondering if that's one of the things why a book can fall flat when it when it doesn't do that very well. Yeah. Well, speaking of, I have a book that I wouldn't call a favorite of 2019, but is definitely a standout of 2019, and a book I think book club should read because it's interesting to talk about um did either of you read susan Choi's trust exercise name that as one of my books too oh is it but like is it a favorite i really enjoyed it but i'm I'm curious to hear what (laughs) your take was (laughs) it's a good book to discuss there's a lot there to discuss um and it's certainly a very unique book i don't think i've read very many books written the way that she wrote Mm -hmm the book I think I just didn't feel as satisfied in the sort of like ending where you kind of are supposed to get what the whole first part was Mm -hmm. I I think I was still like well so what kind of you know like it didn't feel like it was doing what it was meant to do not to say that to assign intention but I didn't feel like I had a conclusion that I felt comfortable with Oh, that's interesting because I, I mean, I, I definitely felt the same way, but I think I actually enjoyed that like lack of resolution because I thought insofar as test exercise, um, have you read it, Cody? No, I haven't. And I feel like you guys are talking around a spoiler, I, which I appreciate. Well, yeah, there's like, oh, yes. yeah, there's, like, there's, there's several <laughs> interesting yeah. ones in that book. Um, but like a kind of very vague and maybe not super accurate plot synopsis is that it's about like, you know, a group of teenagers at this performing arts high school in Houston in the 80s and they're like all like drama kids and it's you know the drama and hijinks that ensue is one way which is not quite sufficient but (laughs) articulating what it's about um but I mean so one of the things that you do in drama class are these trust exercises like trust falls and like groping in the dark and it's like all weird and charged and uncomfortable um but I think one of the and, and you know it raised lots of questions about like the kinds of relationships you're just taught to expect as ones that you can trust right like a teacher and a student or you know um even like friends or thinking about your family like when you're a teenager right um and or a narrator and the reader exactly right and so then it kind of plays with some of those expectations as well and thinking about like what goes into that right what are the expectations that we bring as readers coming to a text what are the things that we want the narrator to fulfill for us, right, as in terms of, like, the kinds of endings or resolutions or clarity or, you know, sense of meaning that's, like, you know, um, given to us on the, on the other end of that. And I thought, I actually thought, so in, so in that sense, I had, like, the same, like, yeah, the same kind of reaction yeah. of, like, oh, <laughs> what? And then, you know, I think, but I think, I think like, you know, kind of in, in feeling that out, it was, like, oh, like, that's actually kind of amazing to kind of have to grapple with the things that I brought to the text that made me really want and an- anticipate some kind of, like, you know, bow or something to like tie it all up and I was like oh you don't get that but I think that's also part of what's being narrativized in in some of the stories as well it's like what it means to expect certain outcomes or expect there to be a follow-through that you just don't get so I did read another one earlier that reminds me of this which I hesitate to name just because I don't want to like say that there's a spoiler in it that'll make people read it in a different way. But okay, so there's this book <laughs> um, that I read earlier this year. And and the there is a reveal that happens in it. And the reveal comes fairly late in the book. But I feel like it's not super surprising. The richness of the book is around knowing what that 
surprise is and thinking about the ramification. It's about a secret and some people are keeping the secret um, and you wonder like, wow, about the implications, moral implications of keeping the secret. Um, but you know, sometimes people talk about it like, oh yeah, like a really surprise twist at the end. I don't think that's what the book was about. Mm -hmm. I think it was about why some people choose to keep secrets and what that means for the people that they care about. Mm -hmm. um, so sorry to be, have a really non-spoilery talk about a book that I didn't even name, but, but I feel like there's like choices, <laughs> I feel like there's choices that, that authors make that can steer you down a path for how to enjoy the book. And, and sometimes, you know, like sometimes, I, I don't pick up on those hints. And I'm like, but I thought it was like this. Can I ask, I mean, this is kind of related, but not quite related. How do you guys feel about spoilers in general? I mean, I think I have kind of a weird relationship to this because I really enjoy them actually personally, but I understand that you there like is this knowing. like, oh yeah, I'm oh. like always reading like, you know, when I watch TV shows or like movies or whatever, like it drives like, you know. It, it drives my husband Gabe kind of crazy, I think, because I end up sitting there like looking up like the ending <laughs> things as we're watching something. Um, I, I, it's like a weird thing, but I really enjoy reading like recaps. I really enjoy like reading synopses. Like I really because I think for me, a lot of the pleasure is in figuring out like how they articulate that thing. That and I'm also maybe just like a scaredy cat sometimes, and things are stressful. Well, I, you know. <laughs> I feel like the that that ignorance, you know, in the classic sense, um, is so uh, fragile, mm -hmm. and you can only have it once, mm -hmm. un unless you know it's like decades go by and you really just don't remember it. I feel like it's a little bit precious to not know the spoilers because it's so easily spoiled. Yeah, I I agree. I unless it's something I don't care about. Because then if I don't care, I don't, you can tell me whatever you want. I've been hate reading all of these reviews of the last Star Wars movie. <laughs> <laughs> me too. <laughs> it's so much fun. It's really fun. <laughs> yeah, and, and if I don't care, I actually prefer to then just know. I'm like, just tell me I need to know, and then I can move yeah. on with my life. Yeah, because someone will like be like, oh, are you ever going to read this book? And I'm like, no, tell me everything. Tell me whatever. Uh -huh. like, I don't need to keep it a secret, but... Right. But on the flip side, I do like to have context for what I'm reading mm -hmm. or watching. Like, I love to read the, f the like, summary. Not the summary. The, like, what is that called? The flap, whatever that little description is. Because um, I like to have a little bit of context to what I'm reading. But mm -hmm. I don't necessarily want to know everything that right. I'm reading either. I feel right. like I get myself into trouble because I don't want the context. Like, I want to go in kind of knowing as little as possible and just, like, see what's there and, and just not bring any preconceived notions to it. But then that means sometimes like I don't get into the book in the right way. And then it's just me fighting with it where if I'd read the blurb, then that would have not been a problem. So um, I like to not know as much, but mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a price to be paid. Yeah. It's also interesting to think if that like depends on the like medium or the genre too, because I mean, on the one hand, right. So I'm like, I, I'm like a shameless like spoiler like, <laughs> or whatever. Um, I will press stop on this recording. <laughs> but um, uh, actually, Sarah and I started doing this subscription to the Center Theater Group this past Ooh. year, which is super fun, and I highly recommend as my plug <laughs> for the holidays. Um, and we've been uh, so we have a subscription to a series at the Mark Tate Perform, and so we recently went to go see Jitney August Wilson's Jitney, and it was 
phenomenal and I knew nothing about mm. it. <laughs> and actually I have known pretty much like nothing about most of the plays that we've gone to see, um, which has been really great actually. There's like something so magical about being in like the theater space and just having a world open up in front of you and having to just like learn what it, you know, like the kind of like As the language go. of yeah. like what's going on and the context and the kind of emotional registers that are, you know, um, and to feel or not, because depending on how, yeah successful yeah. performances, <laughs> you know? Um, like, the power of, like, the actors and their interactions, like, to be able to pull you as an audience member, because just like, the dynamism of that, I think that I find really mm-hmm. kind of intoxicating to feel like, oh, wow, like, I'm, like, in this world now, you know, that I didn't even know existed, basically, beforehand. And I, and I you know, so I'm, I'm sympathetic, of course, to, like, the, the feeling of, like, not knowingness, you know? But, yeah, but it's just interesting to me that I think recently I'm just like, oh, right, like, I, I love that feeling in certain contexts, I guess. yeah. How important is like your trust to mm-hmm. come back to this <laughs> common theme in the the author or the creators of that media? Like if it's an author I know well, like I've read tons of their books, I'm ready to go in with no context and and I might not make the same decision with someone who I'm like, I just don't know what to expect and this is totally new and I might need a little bit of a primer first. Oh. I mean, I think for me, it's but also been a really interesting, I mean, I think I've mentioned a couple of times, like in our conversations, like on this podcast too, I've been having kind of like a weird relationship with reading in the last couple of years, like since leaving kind of like a more academic-y setting. Um, and I feel like now I'm in a really good place where I just like I'm enjoying doing it and back to like kind of reading voraciously and feeling good about that. But um, for like a long time, I mean, I think a lot of reading always felt motivated. It's like, oh, like, what can I, like, get out of this? Or is this going to be, like, interesting for my research? Or can I write something interesting about, you know, um, which is unpleasant, actually, <laughs> at the end of the day. It's, you know, it's, like, an unpleasant relationship to have to, to reading. And so now I'm just, like, really enjoying, like, picking up something that just, like, looks exciting because, oh, it's, like, I mean... To be perfectly honest, sometimes I'm like, oh, it's a beautiful cover. <laughs> and I've yes. seen it around a lot, and it sounds like it might be kind of interesting, you know. Um, and then just kind of having that experience with it um, has been really, like, yeah, I think, like, really healing in a lot of ways. I'm like, oh, like, that's also what reading is, too. Like, you don't have to have, like, a kind of um, have it all cased out, right? It's like, oh, like, this author, again, I know, like, you know, has this kind of, like, scholarly whatever, you know, like, halo around them or something. Yeah. Um and I'm going to be able to probably like write or think X, Y, and Z things about it. It's just like, no, I'm just going to pick up this book and like see what happens. Yeah. Me. <laughs> I mean, as a side note, I also feel like grad school killed my love of reading mm-hmm. slightly. And I'm still working on recovering from that. Oh We're all in book recovery. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say I'm very much a like a mood instinct reader. So I do like to have a little bit of an idea of what I'm getting into because I will just stare at my bookshelf and I'll like see what I sort of gravitate towards Mm -hmm. because I think if I'm not in the mood to read something it also makes it harder for me to get back into reading like I used to just be able to just literally pick up whatever you know when I was younger and I think now with like work and you know grad school um, recovery and and like your phone and Netflix whatever like there's so many different distractions that I have to really like know that I want to engage in this kind of a experience before I do it. There's an intention to picking up that specific book. Yeah. And I know pretty much like instantly 
if it's working or not because I'll put it down or I'll, I'll read it like quickly. Yeah. Do you feel guilty for the other books that you're not choosing? <laughs> They're no, because I'll get to them. <laughs> I'll get to them eventually when my mood gets there. But I've also, that's really helped me declutter a lot because I've, if at a certain point I'm like, I've had this book for 10 years and I know I'm not going to read it, like why am I holding on to it? So I've gotten a lot better about getting rid of books I'm not going to read. There's some great programs to get those books into the hands of people who need them, too. I know you're aware of this, and I don't need <laughs> to tell you this, but um, I d I'm just recalling several times over the last year where people are like, oh, no, give us some books. We're going to take them to these inmates in the prison so they have something exactly. you know, more interesting to read than whatever was on the shelf before. Exactly, yeah. And that, that, those are that's where my books have gone, but also to the library because I like to donate to the library as well. Uh, but yeah, it, so it feels good. I'm like, I'm getting it out of the way. Someone else will use it and I don't have to have this like guilt about not reading like this classic that I'm so quote unquote supposed to read or this must read that I'm supposed to read that I'm just never going to get to. I, I'm visualizing my to read pile, which is sort of, you know, scattered around the house in many different piles, mm -hmm. not organized. And there's a lot of nonfiction in there that at some point I was like, oh, I really want to get into this book. But that's not what I'm reaching for right now. Like I'm when I reach for something in the, over the past year, I'd say I'm looking for like a totally immersive, lose myself in the story kind of big adventure where a ton of stuff happens and it's like eye opening or, or you know, eye, mind expanding in some way. That's yeah. kind of where I've been. I mean, I have also read a ton of memoir for whatever reason this year, but but when I'm reaching for a book and I've got a choice, that's kind of where I'm going. So what? What are you excited about in 2020? What do you want to read next? Oh, um, well, I actually just got Miriam Toe's Women Talking. I picked it up at the store. I've heard a lot about it. There's, you know, there's silhouettes of women in bonnets, which is kind of interesting because I feel like that's, I guess, been a big theme this year um, <laughs> in terms of like literature. Um, but I've, I've heard it's, it's really wonderful. So I'm excited to read that. Oh, there's also a book that I started reading that has actually been really fun and um, and just like I think like you know kind of food for thought for me. It's called The Power of Nunchi. Have you guys heard of this? There is um, an excerpt was featured um, uh, in the New York Times, uh, but it's by this Korean American journalist named Unhyeong. So Nunchi in Korean translates to eye measure. So the idea is like this um, a value for one's ability to kind of enter into like any like social situation and rather than just like you know throwing oneself in and like saying all the things and just being an actor in that space taking stock and being and considering like you know how your words and your presence and your movements in that space actually impact that social dynamic and so the idea being because this is I guess like you know she says it's like you know 5,000 years of like just like this being a kind of essential um, social value in Korean culture um, that means that, you know, um, it can be useful like in business dealings or in social situations or in relationships, right? Because part of it is like anticipating the other person's needs or anticipating how the way that you say something will be received by somebody else. Anyway, so it's really interesting because she kind of, um, one of the things that she talks about is her own experience of having moved to Korea as a 12-year-old who didn't speak any Korean. Um, and she's like, you know, I mean, it's, it's kind of silly anecdote, but she's also like, oh, you know, I became like head of the class and I was like doing super well in school, but like not because I actually knew Korean all that well, even like a couple of years later, but because like, she had learned to read like the body language and just like understand the social mores of the classroom to be able to like know like, oh, like my teacher's like tensing up this way when, you know, they, like, she always does that when she's highlighting a really important thing for the test. I was thinking about that a lot in terms of just, um, 
my own feelings about like language acquisition and learning because for me I've spent a lot of years studying different languages like Russian or French and even Korean and when I've lived in these places the language comes fairly easily and I feel like much more you know able to communicate and comfortable in my own skin and fluent and like the second I get on a plane and go somewhere else it's like all gone you know and I joke about it being kind of like a weird like social osmosis thing or something you know um, and I've like found it very difficult because you meet people who are just like really good like linguists right who have like entire like systems of like language like in their heads as though it's just like always ready like with the you know ready to access um, and that's just never how I've interacted with language but I was thinking just given like that anecdote that kind of kicks off that this book, um, The Power of Ninji, um, that maybe that's part of it, right? That like, you know, um, linguistic facility comes in some ways as like a response to just like a social mm. context, right? It's like, it's not just me like hearing and understanding the syntax and the vocabulary. It's like looking at and interacting with you and your tone of voice and the way that you're saying a thing, even if I don't quite understand like what the grammar is behind that thing. Like I think I kind of get, you know. Um, yeah, so that's been kind of an interesting and fun thing. So I'm excited to keep reading that. I've just kind of been reading it intermittently, and you know, because it's it's very it's like fun anecdotes and case studies and things like that. But I want to add that to my yeah reading list. Yeah, um, it's. I mean, I can't fully recommend it because I haven't finished it, but <laughs> it started, but you started a lot it of really interesting trains of thought. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry. After after this recording, I'm gonna go home. I am going to look at all of those various piles, and I'm gonna see what speaks to me. And what I need to choose next to be more selective about my future mood. Yeah, sounds great. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I am wishing you both a very readful and productive 2020 with lots of fun. Yeah, you too. Yes, thank you. And um, thank you for listening. We will be back with season two in 2020. Yay! All I'm Cody Cisco. I'm sitting in Avenue 50 Studios with Carla Samoth. Carla, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So it, our meeting is overdue. <laughs> it, right. I was going to say it would seem that we would have run into each other, and apparently we did but didn't know it. Right. So uh, two nights ago, we were at Shonda Buchanan's reading at Romans right. for Black Indian and happened to both be in the audience yet still hadn't met yet. So I feel like there's some force that's uh, <laughs> determined to bring us together. Um, and I originally reached out, I think, when Sakaya Manning suggested that I talk to you about your book, One Day on the Gold Line. Right, she's wonderful. And, and it's um, your book's been out now f- three or four months? It's been out since July. Since July. So and July, August, September, October. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> we're doing the math and we're kind of shocked how quickly time's flying. Yeah, yeah. Um, how has the how has the post-publication journey been? What uh, I know you've been doing a lot of events. How have those gone? You know, it's been really great. I've um, gone to several different cities and read in different places in LA and I love it. I actually really, I one of my favorite readings was in Seattle where I'm from. And because I actually write about um, this one year, fourth grade, which was a pivotal year both for <coughs> both for the teacher as well as for the students, it was 1968. It was a super rough area in Seattle. And she actually had a reunion for us in, when we were in our 20s. And so some of my classmates 
um, as well as this teacher, came to my reading in Seattle. That's rare, a fourth, I mean, a fourth grade Yeah, reunion. it was very memorable for us, because apparently it was, she kept a, her classroom really safe, but apparently, you know, a lot was going on in 1968, not to date myself, but you'll know how old I am-ish if you read the book. <laughs> um, so that was really cool, and those classmates, um, Aubrey and um, Larry, and they told me that I, they, they we're all chatting. They said, oh, you were like Arya from uh, Game of Thrones, which I haven't watched, but I looked it up and saw because she's a badass tomboy. Yeah, yeah, which is what I was in fourth grade. So that was great. Um, and it's mostly been good. I just came back from Florida, which was an interesting one, and I read at a small um, Christian college, um, Southern Florida College, and I was kind of concerned that, you know, do I need to censor anything? That's been really interesting um, where I've had interviews, you know, that are like Bible Belt audience. And I had one um, host tell me now, you may not think that a lot of our audience, because they're in the Bible Belt, will relate to what you write about. But he said, you'd be surprised. Um, And so when I was in Florida, I, I did have a student who said, you know, who asked me about the intersection of faith and sexuality. For me, it's not you know, it hasn't been a conflict. Um, I'm Jewish. Our family is pretty secular. But to make a gross generalization, I think that with some families, I mean, at least in the Jewish community, that family, even if your family was homophobic, that the whole thing of family trumps whatever feelings you have in a pretty accepting community. Mm -hmm. might be a little different in the Orthodox community. Yeah. (laughs) Um, have, I think you maybe also did an event here at Avenue 50. I did. Um, that event was really lovely. It was intimate. It, um, I wanted to have the people come together who are, were part of some of the people in my writing community. Um, so there were people from the Pasadena, Ro- Pasadena Rose Poets, a group that I am part of, as well as a writing group that I had been in. Um, it was all women, and it was um, really lovely. Um, we also had a 60th, my, my son also did a 60th birthday party for me here at Avenue 60. So Sweet. it's near and dear to my heart. Mm-hmm. So, um, transitioning a little to talk about, um, your memoir. Um, one of the first questions I want to ask is about the structure because it's told as sort of a series of essays. How did you come up with that form? A long time ago, um, I was working with an author, I think Joyce Maynard, who had said, you know, I don't say this that often, but you should really be writing a longer work, you know. And I, at the time, I had a young, pretty young child, single mom, and that seemed really daunting to write a book-length memoir. And she said, well, you know, you could do it like this, and showed me um, a memoir that was made up of linked essays. And so that kind of planted the seed, and I began to write some of these essays and kind of work towards that idea. And then when I went back to school, to, uh, to graduate school, that was kind of my original idea was to do a memoir and essays. And I kind of went back and forth because I was told that that was harder to sell. Probably is. But then I, you know, I had a mentor in graduate school who really encouraged me um, to put it in that form and asked me to pull together the essays that I had written and show her what I was thinking, and it seemed to really fit together well. So it's not an essay collection. They are linked essays. They are, as you say, not all chronological. They're in different forms. One of the things that when I teach is the whole idea that a lot of times when you're writing about difficult themes, trauma, 
your memories are fragmented. Um, and so sometimes using an alternative form is really helpful. And then I was thinking about some of the things that had happened to my son, who is Jewish and black as he got older, and the different ways, the fears that I had, the different ways that people treated him as he became um, not even a young man, like a you know, 13-year-old without even hair under his arm. I was having the talk with my son and thinking about, fearful about what might happen to him um, in, in an encounter with the police, with law enforcement, and then this thing happened to me. Um, where I couldn't immediately find my um, Metro Pass, um, and I actually even used to do PR for Metro Art. I had the receipt, but I couldn't find the pass, and I was taken off, and I was um, searched in a really invasive way, and ultimately my nose was broken by one of the deputies. I had been working on a, a piece about things that happened when my black son got older, and I ended up writing that in a list form because it was really hard for me to approach that as just that was one of the essays where I, I just couldn't seem to get myself, I couldn't figure out how to do it. And somebody said, why don't you just make a list? Um, and so, um, you know, I tried one of the techniques that I would teach in terms of alternative forms. Um, so you asked about chronology. One of the things, originally I had a piece at the very beginning, um, or maybe this, it was the second after the preface, called Graduation Day at Addiction High. Um, and I had several readers who said, you know, well, I really think this should be later in the book because right away you know this person who really wants to have a child more than anything in the world succeeds in having a child. The child, this is who the child is, the child grows up, the child struggles with addiction, and the child goes into recovery, and you pretty much know what's going to happen thereafter. Um, I still kind of think about that a little bit. Like, I don't think it would have been a terrible thing to have kept it where it was at, you know, so... Um, I, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about how I might have structured the book once I, I did it, but every once in a while I, I, I do think about, oh, maybe that. How do you think about um, what you leave in and what you keep out or is it all in? Uh, that's a really interesting question. I mean, there's what period do you want to cover with this? Why is this a fit? Why did you have that in there? Like I have that that whole story Simpson met about working on an all women's backcountry trail crew. Yeah. Um, and it kind of and, and one could argue does that belong in this memoir? But a big a part of it was sort of finding my way back to this tough tomboy. They used to call me Sammy Boy <laughs> in fourth grade, um, and sort of defending myself and friends and you know a, a inner city playground and. How do I find my way back to that person, um, the same person who worked on this all-women's backcountry trail crew and survived it, and who played rugby, even though I was a really shitty athlete by then, and so on. And so as I went through life, what is it that I could turn to and try to figure out when I felt like I just can't do this anymore, this is just too hard? Then there's the question of what do you keep in and what do you keep out in memoir in terms of what story can you tell? Do you censor yourself? I mean, I've always heard, write the first draft as if no one's reading it, and then edit thinking that everyone will read it. I did give a copy of the book to my son, who had really encouraged me to, uh, to write this book and been supportive of it and asked him to take a look at it um, once the book was accepted for publication. Um, he didn't read it. <laughs> He said he would, but he didn't. And so, um, and, and I don't know if he knows if he will 
read it. You know, he might, at, he probably will at some point. He certainly heard parts of it because he's come to readings. It's interesting because at the uh, reading with Shonda, she talked about giving the book to her sister and saying, you know, you don't have to read this, but here it is if you want to. It, it's a sensitive moment for a writer to both be vulnerable and say, here, I've told this story. It's also on the other side, sometimes difficult for them to see their story told by someone else. And yeah, right. navigating that's tricky. Right, and I think she talked about, you know, one of the things is that ultimately, you know, it's my story, it's my, from my perception during a, a window, during a time period. And my, as, as, I don't know if you have siblings. Do you have siblings? I have an older sister, yeah. Okay, well, are your memories ever different about what happened in we life? compare memories about our childhood all the time and and do they differ we yeah 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 we notice different things we focus on different things one of the reasons we do that is that we're reinterpreting what our childhood was now that we know more as adults and okay. that to me is that's fascinating yeah I think that um, similarly, so I have three siblings, and we all have different memories depending on our birth order and maybe how we, we want to see it. And I think there's an acceptance with my siblings. I did have that, that my, our memories are different. I want to pick up something you said about finding that part of you, the Sammy boy, sort of tough girl, that seemed to be a through line from your, your childhood and then up until you're being a young woman on the backcountry. Is, was there a, a period of time or, or something in your life where you feel like that part of your identity got taken away from you or compromised in some way? Yeah, I mean, I would definitely say um, starting when we moved from the inner city where, um, you know, mostly everyone was um, African-American or Asian, and then there was a big Sephardic Jewish population, and there was, you know, but but basically I had a, a fortunately I had this teacher, Mrs. Kumada, who really instilled ethnic pride, said, you're something, you're Jewish. Um, and I also was confident in my identity as Sammy boy as being this very um, kind of butchy tomboy. So then my parents... Um, moved uh my dad worked in what was the suburbs in Bellevue and they ended up moving buying a house there and moving out there and it was a huge culture shock for me and for my siblings and I don't know exactly what happened everyone there was very waspy white little nose I have a strong nose as my my friend Marilena likes to call them and um we were like the other and so my older siblings ended up going back to school in the city in Seattle and I just got out a little sooner. I graduated early. Going back to the topic of health challenges, both in terms of, of the, the struggle for you to get pregnant, um, which you recount, and in terms of um, mental health challenges, particularly with addiction and, and your son, what have you learned through those processes about, or through those experiences about surviving and thriving? Mm, that's a great question. And I feel like I'm constantly relearning that. Uh, you know, it's interesting because the whole thing about the struggle to, to have um, a son, I think there were definitely times where people must have thought that I was a little bit nuts because I, I kept having miscarriage after miscarriage and invasive treatment. And um, I have to say that when I finally, I, I was ready to give up and start again, separate from the person I was married to, and then um, try again on my own. And 
and I actually did try again on my own when my son was seven. But I have to say, I really felt like when I was finally pregnant with him and I was able to give birth, like, okay, I trusted myself that I really needed to take this as far as I could. And that when I was pregnant with him before I knew it, I was ready to give up and say, okay, I'm going to get healthy again and, um, and adopt. But there was something in me that, you know, and, and it sometimes served to my detriment. You might have noticed that in the book, that um, I sometimes didn't know when to give up. Um, and I just kept, so what have I learned? Um, I learned that there is a store of resilience and how important it is to have a connection. For me, reading like about other people's stories was a lifeline. It's part of why I wrote my book, because I wanted to read about people and families that looked like ours, and I didn't necessarily see that out there. So I kind of wrote the book that I about the things I wanted to read about, because that was really kept me alive re hearing about other people's uh, struggles, particularly when my son was struggling with addiction, reading books by other, by addicts, by families of addicts. But I also learned that it takes a certain strength to also say, you know, I give up, I've had enough, you know, to be willing to step down and say, um, I've taken this as far as I can. That there are, I mean, certainly with addiction and with dementia, you learn that there are things that you are powerless over. Not to sound like, you know, I'm a recorded 12-step, but it, it's true. There are, there are things that we're powerless over. And um, that has been a really, I have to keep reminding myself that over and over again because um, there is a sense of wanting, I think a lot of us have wanting to sort of control the outcome and, you know, or redo the past or control the future. And I, I really, you know, this whole process really made me see how much of an illusion that is. Yeah. If we hold ourselves responsible for the world, how do we do anything? You touched on this a little bit, but I want to maybe dig in a little deeper. Um, you recount a few instances in the book of, of domestic abuse. I've talked to several authors about how writing served as a way for them to heal after trauma. What has that been like for you? You know, I was, I was thinking about that because I, I was just listening, I think, to an interview you did with the author uh, who talked a lot about trauma. Is it Roxana Preciado? Yes, yeah, okay. thank you. Now I want to read her books. Um, and she talked a lot about the healing power of writing. And yes, it's, it's interesting because I think um, having my son, the point where I realized in my 20s, really not until my 20s, that I really, really wanted to have child children, actually. Um, that's been a real constant in my life. But writing has been a constant since I was very young. And since even my, my mom, just as I did for my son, would get up and type uh, stories. Um, so in a sense, writing is a constant, it's a strength, it's a stream. The healing aspect is interesting. It's healing in the sense that particularly when you're writing memoir, um, you're reflecting back and you're able to feel some sort of uh, knowledge or cathartic, you know, sort of what you said about your siblings looking at, looking at it from the sort of, as some people say, the desk of now, you know, and you're able to look back. However, I think that the illusion, I think it's an illusion that writing can, is necessarily always therapeutic. I think a lot of times you need therapy uh, because of what you wrote and the process of um, writing it. I mean, I, I thought I understood it, that, 
you know, I thought, oh, when I go to edit it for publication, you know, I've read this so many times and I'll be stepping back. But I had to actually go back in, for instance, with the Metro, um, with the sheriff's assault, I had to go back in. I, I had a wonderful editor who kept telling me, you know, go deeper, you know. And so reliving that can be really, really difficult. It definitely can be re-traumatizing. And I was kind of warned about that, but I, it was, it's been much harder than I thought. And also to, you know, at readings, I, you know, to continue to reread some of the, the parts. I mean, it, it, it's wonderful when I hear people say that they feel this connection, that they were, you know, they feel less alone. But for me, um, I, I, I think, um, particularly with memoir, it can be very re-traumatizing. Now, I've been writing more fiction and poetry, and I have to say, fiction is quite wonderful in that you can take certain aspects, um, you know, of something that is unresolved or a piece of somebody who you, you know, that you love. Like, I remember I just took the sweetness of this young man that my son knew who ended up getting... Um, into a situation after a relapse where then he was sent to prison and I, I couldn't imagine what it would do to this lovely sweet young man to be in prison and so I ended up writing a character that wasn't to him at all but it had that sweetness. I had another question about the Metro story. How do you feel about this assault today and what the what has been the lingering impact? I know it's so perfect because it was actually the Highland Park station where this happened. I was going to ask you about On the Gold Line. One day on the Gold Line. One yeah. day on the Gold Line, yeah. the essay. And that name actually came about, I should give credit to my brother, Jim. Afterwards, my family is, you know, like, very sort of old world in terms of when there's an issue we all everybody comes together and try you know tries to do you know to help and mm -hmm. my brother so my brother went around to civil rights attorneys with me um after this happened and but he had me somebody at some point had me write it all write up what had happened and then he did a little editing and he titled it one day on the gold line <laughs> <laughs> so that ended up being the title essay that got published in uh, the Pasadena Weekly was a cover story. And you, and you write about how people came forward after reading that and saying that they had similar experiences. Right. So for years afterwards, my son was kind of blown away because we would be, you know, somewhere in a store, you know, purchasing something and somebody would say, oh, you know, I read your story and that those kind of things happen. You know, my friends and I were harassed by sheriff's deputies. I had a homeless man come up to me and I thought that he was asking for money but instead he came up and said are you the person who wrote one day on the gold line <laughs> and said oh because this happened to me and you know there really was a variety people coming forward from a variety of backgrounds there were people who you know there was one person who said oh you know before I had preconceived ideas about who this could happen to um, and you know after reading your story I thought what could happen to anybody would you like to read something from your book? Yeah, I'd love to. I'll read an abbreviated portion of the preface. Okay. Preface, The Burning Boat. That night on the ferry from Italy to Greece, I felt I was performing a sort of tashlik, the Jewish New Year's tradition of symbolically casting off sins and regrets of the previous year in the form of breadcrumbs tossed into flowing water. Earlier that evening, the warm ocean night had wrapped me in a peaceful feeling of embarking on something new while leaving behind my recent losses as if I had tossed them into the ocean. 
It was 1991 and I was 32 years old. I was fighting to recover from what felt like the biggest loss. I had been engaged in living in San Francisco when I accidentally got pregnant. I dreaded having another abortion. The first one two years prior while in another doomed relationship had felt necessary. But it had left me sunk so low that I was like a poster child for the anti-abortion movement. This time around, not realizing I was pregnant, I had been taking medication that could harm the fetus. After much research and agonizing indecision, I terminated the pregnancy. When my fiancé and I split up, I lost hope of having a baby in the near future and in the dreams I had for a lasting relationship. The quicksand of unrelenting regret threatened to swallow me up again. I had made a new plan, go away on a magical trip overseas, Europe, Greece, maybe Turkey and Israel, then return and buckle down to the serious business of job, house, and baby, but on my own. A noise broke into my dreams, ending the blissful quality of my sleep. Drunken sailors, I thought, and rolled over, hoping to recover my dream. The pounding and shouts of wake up, get out, in broken English continued. Groggy, I tried to sit up. I staggered out in my pajamas, no bra. Passengers had fallen asleep, curled up against one another, languid, cozy, on top of blankets strewn about them, children sleeping on parents, and dogs sprawled in between. On the ship deck, the idyllic scene had shifted to chaos. Dozens of sailors tried to climb the mast of the ferry, fighting with some kind of mechanism to lower the lifeboats, clearly something they had never had to do before. Other sailors stood looking agitated, puzzled, waving their hands, waving their arms, and shouting orders in Greek. Families and lovers whom I had envied the night before seemed frenzied, panicked. Children and parents clung together. Some cried, some held babies. Dogs ran the length of the deck, barking or huddled with the children whimpering. The sailors managed to lower the lifeboats, which dropped one by one into the water with loud, messy splashes. Sailors shuffled women and children onto the lifeboats. Some couples refused to be separated. Strangest of all were the dogs. Some men remained on board while the dogs went on the lifeboats. On deck, an Italian man attempted to comfort both his wife and me, though I was dry-eyed. Like me, all the usually elegant Italian women were braless, but the men must have gone to bed with their Italian suits, pressed and ready to jump into, because that's how we saw them now. They were beautifully and immaculately dressed, not a wrinkle. I was hustled along into a lifeboat by momentum. No one stopped to ask if I wanted to be saved, but I got in obediently. In my lifeboat, people were crying and crossing themselves. A German woman insisted desperately to herself, my husband, he's still on the ship, but he's a good swimmer. A lifeboat in the middle of the ocean, in the middle of the night, complete darkness as we drifted away from our ferry. I wondered if our ship was sinking with the remaining passengers and our belongings. Would these few people around me in my lifeboat be the last ones I'd see? I didn't know them, had barely spoken with anyone on this trip. Who besides my family would feel pain at my going? Would my ex-fiancé feel any regrets? Had I left anything undone? I imagined my parents and my siblings, and I felt a prick of sadness for them. After all, I would hate it if one of them died. I was no longer afraid. I'd been more frightened the day before when I was in Bari, a steaming, dangerous port. Instead, a relief washed over me as I no longer beat myself senseless with self-blame, regrets, ruminations. Instead, I thought, I've led a good life. At 32, I'd experienced a lot. I glanced over at the one other woman not crying. She rocked her baby and sang softly, eyes locked with her infants. No room for anyone else. Magic. 
I gasped as I realized how much I wanted that. I remembered having had that life inside me, how I'd already felt like a mother. No, I said out loud, and then the boulder inside me that kept the tears in rolled out and I wept. I was not ready to die without having had a baby. With the first light of dawn and a striking sunrise, I started to think that I should have grabbed a camera. People seemed to have fallen silent for how long. A large ship pulled up. They threw down a ladder and we climbed in. Passengers on our rescue ship moved over, made room, and offered us food. We found out what the problem was, engine fire. Apparently, engine fires are the biggest potential danger on passenger ferries like ours. Everyone assumed their cars and belongings were gone, and we were just happy to be alive. The honeymooners didn't see a bad omen, their life going up in flames. Instead, they saw a new beginning, and I decided to do the same. So I like to tell my son that I got off a burning boat to have him. <laughs> <laughs> it ups the stakes quite a bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, so let's talk about literary community in L.A. What, what do you appreciate about it? Maybe we'll start there. Literary community in L.A. I love um, the diversity and the camaraderie of literary community in L.A. And I know that there are aspects, any of any community where there can feel like there's com competition, um, there's judgment, and some of it is internal. I mean, most of us as writers are constantly not comparing ourselves to ourselves, but rather to other people. Word. <laughs> right? Yeah, all the time, yeah. Yeah, it's so hard to do otherwise, isn't it? Um, so, you know, I have found a really supportive community in LA, particularly through groups like Women Who Submit. Yes. Yep. They're, that is a wonderful organization. Um, it's not an S&M group. It's, <laughs> we, maybe they can have a spinoff chapter. <laughs> maybe, maybe. We, uh, we get together and we have um, submittal parties. And people, so there are writers of all different um levels of experience and publishing and you know different stages of publishing and people are extremely supportive um every time you submit a piece when you're at the submittal party people come in with their laptops everybody claps and cheers and um and in general i've just found a community of women really diverse group of women in terms of how they write who they are what ethnicity age um, from, you know, much older to much younger. And I love that. Um, I, I, it's one of the things that I think I would miss if I left L.A. Do, what do you think about the literary community here? I mean, I'm devoting so much time <laughs> to it that I obviously I care deeply about it. And um, so when I was here at Avenue 50 Studio for the Poets and Writers meeting last week, um, Luis Rodriguez was here, and someone asked him a question about community, and I loved his response. He said, community is where he can teach, but also where he gets fed. Yes, I totally agree with that. Um, I've worked with some organizations here like Right Girl, um, and taught in uh, juvenile detention facilities, the probation camps, and really, really enjoyed it. Um, and But I think there's so many other ways that we can also give back, you know, through mentorship, um, you know, through hosting, through pairings of writers, when you have a, um, you know, a newer writer and a writer who's more experienced and more published. And, you know, this is just, just like off the top of my head. But yeah, I think it feels like to me that it's a very collaborative community yeah, and yes. everyone's got social justice on their mind, which 
contrast to others which might be more sort of about climbing the hierarchy and like leveling up in terms of status and like you know the, I, I'm doing a complicated hand movement right now but basically the <laughs> I like, know I've been doing it the whole time <laughs> it's my Middle Eastern heritage um, I keep going. this you know it feels here like people are are open they're willing to come together and they want to find each other in a positive way which is I appreciate um, what would you like to see more of here you ask such good questions. <laughs> <laughs> I almost stumped you with that last one. I was ex- excited about that. <laughs> you know what? I want to see more multi-gener... I, I'm obsessed with kind of multi-generational pairings, you know? So I want to see more of, like, very senior and younger people of different ethnicities getting together, hearing each other's stories. Um, people... I want to see... Uh, continued support for people who have stories to tell but haven't yet had the opportunity whether young or old Um, I have uh, someone in my life who's a very dear friend and a mentor Gerda Govin Duarte and she um, often will talk about working with um, older women particularly women of color who haven't had the who have incredible stories and rich rich writing voices but haven't been given necessarily the support to tell those stories and the importance of providing a space for that um but i've always you know ever since i read about this um mixed housing unit that had teen parents and seniors together (laughs) i've always wanted to see more and more of that you know and and also cross-cultural and having people come together and help tell each other's stories kind of like a story core situation where you had two people which is another wonderful thing i did with my son once it was great you're the second person in two days who's like told me story core is the best thing oh my god they're you know what they they say when they're talking about it that Things get revealed, like you're sitting across from someone who you feel like you may know better than anyone else in the world, and then you're sitting across just you, the two of you, someone in the background, the producer in a box of Kleenex, and you hear and say things that, you know, have not been said before between the two of you, so I totally recommend it, yeah. I think I did I did one with my son when he was sort of right in the middle of struggling with addiction, and... Um, I still have it somewhere, it, it, but w- there, he uh, he wanted to ask me questions, and he asked so many profound questions. Just listening to that later. What is it about us that makes it only during a moment of crisis that we're able to like bring down all the walls and ask the honest questions? That's a really beautiful, that's a really wonderful question. I mean, I I think it's like you're so stripped, you're so raw. You're also more willing, I think, to, I think that's when I was most willing to believe, like, I am not, you know, I never thought I was, like, the master of the universe or anything, but, like, really to say, like, I have very little control. Like, when you're just, you know, you're much more open, I think, when you're stripped that raw. Um... Because what other, what else do you have but to to listen and tr- I mean you're I don't know what do you think how would you answer your question <laughs> I think sometimes we don't want to know those truths right most of the time when we're not gutted and raw well, we're when doing, someone oh go ahead when someone's very honest with you that could challenge your conception of yourself or the world and. I think a lot of people don't want to be challenged or, you know, feel like they're 
challenged or struggling in so many different ways, they're not going to add to it. You know, if maybe it's like we're treading water so much that we don't want to like pour another bucket of water on our heads. That's so true. I mean, and yet, like when you're just down to almost nothing or what you feel like is pretty much nothing. Then nothing you, to lose. Nothing to lose. And yeah. you just, hmm. yeah. I mean, I don't want to be in that place right now, but it's also sort of, there's a certain beauty to it now when you're, you're that raw, you know, just what is revealed and how you come out of the ashes. I'm thinking in particular in your book, the moment when your son is leaving the addiction treatment center and going back to his father's house rather than yours and how that laid bare for you a primal fear of rejection by, of your son. Yeah, it was a combination of that primal fear of rejection and that I had been given, like, again, that struggle to control something uncontrollable like addiction. I had been given really precise instructions about do this, have him come home with you. And I, and somehow, like, I was grasping onto that, that if I just follow these exact instructions, maybe I can save him. And Stick to the plan. Yeah, so writing that piece was a little bit scary because you know it really shows just how crazy you can be at extremes for in sure. extremes and a lot of times the people the family of the addict act crazier than the people who are struggling with addiction in another life I remember walking down the street in the height of I think the AIDS crisis you know in San Francisco somebody was walking along with us asking uh, for directions and then he started to ask about something else and I was walking with someone who I had been engaged with too <laughs> and um, and he knew I had a $20 bill in my pocket and was kind of like don't give it to him you know because this person sort of started to decompose as we were talking saying you know wait I, this you know I was fired from my job I'm getting evicted I've lost everything and, you know, I always regret that I listened to the person who I was with and I didn't give him the $20 because I always wonder, like, not that it would have changed his life at all, but I feel like sometimes just having someone being willing to do something that seems like it will offer some, you know, that, that, that they get you for a second and just how quickly you can lose everything, you know. Yeah. But I have had different people who have been really kind to me in my life. I did always wait for this one person who never showed up, which is this, my mother says that when she was at home and all four of us were really ill and she was by herself and she was really sick, that someone pounded on the door and she said, don't come in, it's the plague, you know. Yeah, and yeah. <laughs> the woman said, no, I'm coming in and pushed her way in. I don't remember if she was a neighbor or what and came in and just sort of took over and started you know, cooking and cleaning everybody up. So when I was like a struggling single mom, I'm doing the <laughs> quote thing here. <laughs> you can't see. Um, I used to always wait for that person to come to the door. And <laughs> they did come, though, in other ways. They, people do show up at the strangest times, don't they? Who, uh, the least expected. Carla, thank you so much for the interview. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure.
Happy New Year, Bookswell Intersections listeners. Shannon Egan here. If you've already burned through all the books you received over the holiday season, we've got some great new selections to pick up in person at events in early January 2020. These events span all age groups, picture books, YA, and contemporary adult literature. They also all happen to have earned a spot on our What's Hot list and feature female authors of color. Up first, Saturday, January 4th, 10.30 a.m. at Vroman's, Andrea Loney will present her latest children's book, Double Bass Blues. It follows the story of Nick, a young man and aspiring musician, navigating his suburban school life and the very busy city he lives in. Loney is a local L.A. author who previously won the Lee and Lowe New Voices Award for her book, Take a Picture of Me, James Vanderzee. For our YA event, Wednesday, January 8th, 7 p.m., also at Vroman's, Abigail Hin Wang will discuss and sign Love Boat Taipei. The main character, Everett Wong, is all set for a strictly monitored summer in a Taiwanese education program, but instead she finds herself aboard the Love Boat, where adults turn a blind eye and teens run amok. Abigail Wang will be in conversation with fellow YA superstars Nicola Yoon and David Yoon. Don't miss this adventurous romance or the chance to meet and greet these YA heavy hitters. Finally, Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reed comes out December 31st, and I'm truly counting down the days till I can snag a copy. Lucky for me, Miss Reed will be at Book Soup Wednesday, January 15th at 7 p.m. The book centers on the relationship between Amira, a young black babysitter, and Alex, the white woman whose child she cares for. When Amira is accused of kidnapping Alex's child at the grocery store, it sets off a chain of events that will upend both of their lives. This debut has already received a ton of buzz, and I'm so excited to meet the author in person. Want to make sure you never miss out on an event? Visit bookswell.club and subscribe to our newsletter. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at bookswellclub, and be sure to check out our show notes page for details on all the great books and events we featured in this episode. As always, thanks for listening.